Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club. Hello and welcome to an episode of Inward Book Club. Today, we're at Distorted, recording an episode of Book Club, and we've got a guest. We've got Rob Barraclough. Tell everybody who you are, Rob. Um, I, work-wise, am the managing director of a software company called Rotomaster. Uh, we're a workforce management provider, largely working with NHS, healthcare, the fun markets. Right. Um, and yeah. The rock and roll markets. Absolutely. Right. They're really play. quick to close markets. Fair play. So Rob is a fan of the show and we swap a lot of stuff on LinkedIn. We're all, He's always liking and posting and commenting on our stuff. And we thought, let's get Rob in on the show because let's get it right. Me and Price, you're getting a little bit boring in our dotage. Um, and this month we are reading what is theoretically a management and leadership classic, which is the new one minute manager by Ken Blanchard and Spencer Johnson, who are, to be fair, like management legends, aren't they? Yeah, I, I watched it when we when you first sent through what book we were reading. I went onto YouTube and and found out a few. Did you? Well, yeah, because I feel like getting a bit more background. Right. It's such a short book, which I'm yeah, sure we're about yeah. to cover. Um, and some of the lectures that Blanchard does are genuinely like. You know, when you watch something that's 15 minutes on YouTube and you walk away thinking, I reckon actually, I can change my management style tomorrow yeah, now. Yeah, well, you watch it on YouTube and you think, do you know you've actually added real value? Yeah. And he's, he seems like he's much more, because this is quite a concise book, he's much more bumbling and nervous than you would probably give him credit for. But the book, I mean, I remember, his delivery is good. I remember at university, well, was it university? We had an argument about this the other day. It was because I went to Huddersfield University. But at the time when I went there, it was Huddersfield Poly. Yeah. I remember at Polytechnic, there was a module on our course called Organisational Development, which yep. was basically all about management of people and human resources. And Ken Blanchard was like a key part of that curriculum. And what yeah. year was that, without being rude? <laughs> 84. The give over pricey. Well, Huddersfield, I mean, Huddersfield Uni was uni when I went to uni, and that's 2007, uh, not to make you feel 90, old. But... 90. Right. I graduated in 94. Okay. I think. Yeah. There's a certificate knocking about somewhere. Yeah. Does it say Polytechnic or have you scribbled that out? University. It says Great Seat of Learning. Fantastic. Huddersfield Poly. So on to the book quickly. Sorry to take you off your history tour of the university system in England and Wales. <laughs> Yorkshire. But I mean I've I've got to say, as you just said, Rob, this is a small book. It's succinct and straight to the point. And uh, we normally give our scores at the end, but I'm gonna give it away right now. I thought this was an absolute beauty of a book. Absolutely yeah, superb. A, no two ways about it. it Excellent. Why so excited, Pricey? Tell you what, because it's not full of the standard waffle. I, I think a lot of the modern authors that we've covered could write their books in 100 pages, but they make it 300 pages. Yeah. And then I've got to... Ri- not Rob's not... Oh, by the way, those that are watching, I've actually got COVID, which is why I'm sat at home, yeah, and I've tested it, positive it, for it again today. M- Mike was NFI'd uh, today. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But point being is, you know, a lot of these modern books, they're 300 pages long. 200 pages is just filler and boring nonsense. And actually, those of you that know me, I just want to get to the meat. And this is all meat, I thought, this book. Yeah. And like, I, I, I think about the pages that I turn over, you know, and I, and I look back at the book, 
there's a lot of pages turned over in this book. I mean, I'm sure we'll get into it, but I think it's a really good book. I think, and as you just said, Rob, I did a bit of YouTube watching of this fella, and he's a bit bumbly and waffly, but he's clearly an absolutely properly grade A top guy. Yeah, absolutely. And there's loads of these, so maybe we're going to get into these as like a little series. There's like millions of Ken Blanchard one-minute books. I meant- We've read another Ken Blanchard book, haven't we, Johnny? Well, do you know who made us read it? Was Chris Spence made us read it when we were Emis? It was the One Minute Manager Meets the Monkey. And I mentioned to you about something that in, when I was in the car on the way here, I said, that's not my monkey. Yeah. Is that around distractions? And is that that it, one? No, that's I've, around... Uh, it's the, around task management, really. Task management job, is it? and about defining whose monkey is it. So what ends up happening as a and manager... the monkey being a task, yeah, basically. A, the, yeah. the, the, each task is a monkey... And on and the point being was whose shoulders is the monkey on? Okay. And you'll get this as a manager of people, um, you'll end up with their monkeys on your back. Yeah. As opposed to no, that's not my monkey, mate. That's your monkey. You sort your monkey out. Absolutely, yeah. I mean that's one of the things that I struggle with the most, but I don't suppose it's right, a therapy well, we'll, session. We don't need to go we'll, to that. <laughs> well we'll do that as the next book. Yeah. Absolutely. So I, I'm I, I want to start with something that I highlighted on page twelve, if we may. He talks about these days, effective leadership is more of a side-by-side relationship. And he said, today people look for more fulfillment in their work and their lives. They want to feel engaged and make a meaningful contribution. They're less willing to trade time on the job to satisfy needs outside of work. I mean, we've seen that on steroids, I think, in the last couple of years, haven't we? Yes, and and I take a sharp intake of breath because this is a, a wider point, really. I think society is conditioning us to say that we want that. However, there's a man at the minute digging my garden up and he he rocks up at nine. He digs my garden. Twelve, he goes to KFC for his lunch. <laughs> One, he comes back. Dig, he's like a rake, this guy. Uh, Twelve, he comes back. He digs more garden. Five, he goes home. He doesn't want to be engaged at work and he's perfectly happy. I think there's a lot to be said yes. for the opposite of that. Turn up, do a job, go home, forget about it. I, just to jump in a, a few a few pages further on when he gets into it, when he gets into the main mechanics of how he manages essentially, I thought that, and I've got to be careful, but I, I think there's, in any business, there's more people, especially at a junior level, let's say, who don't necessarily, if you said to them, we'll get into it, but if you said, right, we're going to set your goals together, these are the, and you try and work in that collaborative way, who just look at you and a week later come back with a blank piece of paper and don't want to engage in that process. Do you know what I mean? Some people need to and almost want to be kind of, I come to work, I do my bit, you tell me what to do while I'm here. Yes. This is a, this, the whole book is essentially about, right, we'll set the goalpost, then it's your responsibility to get there and solve the problems and I'll, I'll facilitate that and then we'll review it. And are you finding some people particularly, because I know you do quite a lot of sort of early stage career sales recruiting, don't you? Yeah. Are you finding people actually, they want more direction than that? Yeah, it depends. I mean, I because I've managed kind of more junior teams, so to speak, in the past. And now, like, I, I could use this book for every person that I manage because they're, they're all kind of self-led enough anyway. Right. But yeah, you, when you bring people in, especially, I mean, we'll get into the one minute prisons and all that stuff. I think actually are helpful with anyone, but just I made a note on one of the pages. I can't remember it was, but I think it was one. It was something around how many people would actually engage with this process. And obviously, then as a manager, you want to be like, well, you wouldn't have them in your business, but if the the support team or the customer service reps or whatever, 
who just want to come to work. And, and like Mike said, they want to come and do their attritional work. They want to do the job and go home. You're right, Mike. You know, it's an interesting conversation because I was at, uh, for my sins, Rob, I'm a, I'm a Freemason, right? So I was at a Freemason's lodge the other night and I was talking to an old fella who was a retired dentist. And he made an interesting comment. We were talking about work and careers and, a yeah. bit, and our working lives. And Anthony actually said to me, he said, I've got to tell you something, Johnny. I enjoyed every single second of my working life, which I thought was what an incredible thing to say. Do you think he was telling the truth? Yeah. He said, until I sold it to this other guy who owned 40 dentist practices and he told me what I had to do and where I had to be, he said, my practice was an NHS practice. It was in an area where people were grateful for the treatment. He said, I made a nice living. I did my work. I never flogged myself. But he said, it, 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 so he had purpose in his own way because he felt that what he did was important in his work, but no one managed him, did they? Sole trader in reality, had a business partner who covered his patients when he wasn't there. But it was fascinating to hear him talk about it. He said, I loved what I did. It was brilliant and I could talk to people. But then you look at my brother, he drives a cab. You know, I think you're Stevie right. Stevie just wants to turn up to work and go home, doesn't Correct. He? he just wants to, he, literally, what's Stevie doing tonight at 5.30? He's playing golf with me. All he'll be thinking about all day is... Oh, I'm playing golf with Johnny at five thirty, six o'clock tonight. Yeah. And do you think that in the hours in between when he's in a taxi driving, he's enjoying it or is that just to get to the end of it so that there's money in the bank? I think it's Maybe. 80% getting to the end of it. Yeah. I think occasionally I... a punter walks into the car that's pleasant mm. who helps the time pass more pleasantly. Yeah. That's just one of the things, I mean, we're going off topic, but this, I mean, you invited me on, this will happen, I'm afraid. But, <laughs> but in right. terms of... The, the kind of the dentist and enjoying it and enjoying it for what it is. And then the people who kind of just go to work, but have that kind of job that's kind of in consuming. They're not just touching it, you know, and doing it as freelance or whatever. I, I would find that so difficult. Would you not? Well, just pitching up and going Well, home. just doing the thing. I mean, I've done jobs like that in my earlier Sorry. career. I'm, I'm sure you have, but um, where you just do it and you can like, I can't wait. When's the next time that I'm not doing this 12, right? And then What's from one to five. living for the weekend? But by hard fi. Was that yeah. it? Yeah. But I, I mean, that's a different point, but I just find that difficult. But then I suppose if he clocks off and plays golf with you, and I assume he loves that, and that's a good life outside. I think that's why people get so drunk on Friday. I think if well, you, of course if, it is. If you go to city centres yeah. on a Friday night, that's why there are so many people out fighting and getting drunk. Because actually they've just spent all week cooped up in their call centre or their customer service centre or their bank with a job that actually is meaningless. And I think sometimes when you look at something like this, the one minute manager, and you think, well... Okay, do those people want goals? No, not really. They come in and they want their 26 grand and their flexi shift. And actually what they really want is somebody to just let them get on with it, follow the script in front of them on the screen, get to the end of the week and go out and get obliterated so they've forgotten what their existence is about. And what he's talking about is this purpose and passion that people want out of work. And I do think that's the case. What I'm seeing is now I'm interviewing a lot of candidates where 80 grand a year is a basic salary, Mike. And I don't know if you're hearing this from people, but I'm speaking to people now, particularly the younger ones, where they're on 80K base and they're saying, well, yeah, I want 80K base and I want to work for a company that's got purpose and that's got a moral compass and that's got passion and that's that they want to work for companies that are changing the world. And do you think that's maybe because a lot of the VC-backed companies have meaningless taglines that yeah, sell that. I don't know. I think we've created a lot of spin, haven't we? I think we've got to a point where the job market is such that to attract real talent, and we'll talk about talent 
and how this fits into the one-minute manager later on. I think we've got to a point where to attract true talent, you you can't just say, listen, I'm paying 80k base. Mm. You've got to offer share options and you've got to be able to say, we're going to change the world. Yeah. And, you know, there are plenty of people out there who've got world-changing stories. Imagine some of the people who will have been at Apple when uh, Steve Jobs walked onto a stage and said, 10,000 songs in your pocket. Yeah. They changed the world. And yeah. that, you can only imagine how incredibly exciting it must have been to work in that business. Or the people that worked at Tesla, when Elon Musk came along, said, we're going to build electric cars. People have gone, what? Yeah, right, yeah, I'm in. This is going to be so much fun. But that revolutionary stuff is is. But not everybody can rare, have a revolutionary job. But I do think, I, do th- I mean, we try it, certainly, and I'm sure you do, like to certainly sell progression. Like we'll always aim for growth and we'll always be like, th- yeah. and, and that means this, this, and this. Which I think especially, I mean, you obviously it's sales recruitment that you guys do in the men. So if, as a salesperson, I don't know, I don't know how many salespeople, especially at a senior level, I don't know what the average time there in a, in a role you could tell me but you do want to be able to see that you're going to sell this solution to this kind of customer and the solution is going to grow in this way and then we're going to try and move it into this market you know i don't know if i think that's probably acceptable yes, i think you can sell a dream you don't want to become stagnant i don't but no. i don't know if the, maybe you deal with super well, seniors I, I, maybe I, they I do think in any company paid enough, i but. think in any company if you turn around to them and say listen we turn over a million point five pounds per year and we intend to do the same next year people aren't going to want to join you are they well that i mean that's true yeah that's what I mean, like with the kind of just show up to work and do it. No. If someone said that to me, I'd be like, okay. So he starts at the start with um, part one is the search. And, and he talks about once there was a bright man who went searching. And he, he talks about, uh, here you go. What kind of manager would you say you are? And then their answers varied only slightly. And one guy says, I'm a bottom line manager. I keep on top of the situation. Hard nose, realistic, profit minded. And then they said they always managed, and he, he said he heard pride in their voices, and he's sort of a bit disparaging about this concept of a bottom line manager. And he, he sort of, I wonder what your thoughts are there on that. It, it, it's written like being a profit-minded, hard-nosed manager is a bad thing. Is it a bad thing, guys? Yeah, well, I, when I read that, I've written, is anyone truly a good manager if their input doesn't equal results? And I, I it's difficult, because then he goes on to talk about the kind of humanistic manager, but ultimately, whatever mechanism you use to get there, and of course, more people you'd, you'd prefer more people to be humanistic and yeah. people focused. But ultimately, you're not doing it for pure investment in people. You're doing it so that you invest in people, and then the results come, which ultimately, yeah, you're invest- if you're in a decent business, is going to be bottom line. In the final analysis, you're always investing in the result, aren't you? Yeah, through a conduit of investing in yeah. people or whatever it might be. But I think I think that's that's quite a common theme now that investment in people and making people happy is huge and it's really really important for the purpose of getting the business to where it needs to be it's not some kind of group therapy if you for the sake of <laughs> i don't know I, I i'm a bit more cynical than that i've got to say i think sometimes i thought i was quite cynical there go on <laughs> no i'm miles more cynical than that personally i think sometimes companies sell progression purely because they want to retain staff because they believe that that's what the staff want do they create progression because it's good for their business? Sort of. Do they actually create progression because they want their staff to stay most of the time, I think? Yeah. But to the to the end of them staying and then the business growing in, in line with its plans and then making, hitting the bottom line numbers, I guess. Do you ever play football manager on the computer? Not anymore. So on football uh, manager on the computer, when you're negotiating a contract with a player, yeah. said the 50-year-old nerdy gamer, <laughs> um, when you're negotiating a contract with the player, the player's agent always asks whether they're going to be first team yep. regular 
or a rotation player. Squad player. Or a squad player or uh, like a bit part player. And that has a big bearing on whether they sign, doesn't it? So you lie to them and then they sign. Correct. So you select first. So you're desperate to, to sign Riyad Mahrez and you think, oh, I'll tell you what, I'll, yeah, you're going to be an absolute first team regular. And then you sign someone else and actually you're rotating him. And then he comes, but you worry about that bit when you've got him in the squad, yeah. don't you? And I think you're right, Mike. I think sometimes people sell it. Yeah, brilliant management environment, this, that. A lot of it is about selling the job to people, isn't it? It is. I like this bit on um, on page 21. Yeah. Um, it, it goes, the brain power isn't only in the executive office, it can be found throughout the organisation. Yeah, that is true. I think that's I, I think that's very true. I mean, the, 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 his point is that you should embrace it. I don't know how, quite how many people do embrace it. But, you know, I look at our business, we've got some really, really clever people work for us. Yes, we have. You know, Alex who's listening he's about a 3 out of 10 but when I, I'm joking Alex but, he's in but, the room, but by point the way, being listening. as I use Alex as a good example because Alex is you know he's fairly young I don't know mid 20s or something I can't remember but point being he has a, a different perspective on media to us that he's brought to us and then I look at Jo who works for us she's got this different perspective on on being organised you know I thought I was organised until I worked with Jo and I think collectively in organisations there is a jo lot of brain is like power incredible just incredible she is stuff she comes out with we have these meetings rob where we'll be like so how so what we, where are we up to with this project well we've sent uh we have 262 candidates on the short list of those 200 22,000 the other day to the number yeah She's got 22,000 something yeah she went the response rate's five uh, i put joe what, what one of my clients said can i meet your researcher i said yeah fine my client, absolutely top drawer. I quote her a lot on the show, actually. She went, Mike, that is one of the brightest people I've ever met. She just literally, she comes out with numbers and you're like, it's 5.7%. But there's got to be like a point at which a manager accepts the fact that they've got talent in their uh, employee base who are smart, but smart in different ways. You know, yes. Joe is really bright organisationally. But not very creative, is she? But we've got more creative people than her. Yeah. You know, we've got this we've got this guy Mark that we send off on special projects and you'll say, I need to find XYZ and he comes up with these companies and you just think, How have you got that? And he goes, Well, I thought about this, then I read that, then I did this, and you thought, that's just ace. But he's really slow. But actually, if you said to him, like, I've got this project on climate change technology companies. He just finds these companies that we, that I've been in sales recruitment for 22 years. I think Ken's point is very fair. You know, I think you would actually almost put that above the door of your office as you walked in. The brain power isn't only in the executive office. It can be found throughout the organisation. The issue with that is there's a lot of ego in the executive office. There's a lot of ego that were, uh, Rob's smiling, even though I'm not there. I can see that. But it's true, though, isn't it? There's a lot of ego in the executive office that doesn't listen to brain power on the floor. Yeah, I thought that it was, I mean, I don't know when the initial one minute manager was written, because I know this is a new version, but I thought the point around collaboration and the team having ideas is, I've, I mean, I'm, I'm reasonably young, I'm 34, and I've worked for big companies and little companies, and all, it's all, it's, I've very rarely been in like a super top down, and our business really isn't like that. I smiled just because, um, <laughs> it's not truth ego right. is de ego definitely is at play but um but yeah i think i mean we certainly try and use every idea that we can get i think that the really important thing which leads back to the point that i made at the beginning about not everyone wants to do the same things you've got to be careful in the way that you open the floor up to leading by democracy if you like or lead you know every idea is equal because a lot well, of that's a fair comment. A lot, that's a very a fair lot of, comment. Well, a lot of people don't want to contribute ideas and feel uncomfortable when asked, which I've learned. That's a good point. Which is difficult because then you're like, 
now I've, this is the exact opposite of what I wanted to achieve and now I've demotivated you. And then, and also you then get a few people who've got a lot of ideas that are ill thought through. And then you've got to kind of, again, I've asked for your ideas and now I'm going to say no. So I think essentially this is, it's true, but the executive team, so to speak, has to set a reasonably narrow corridor of strategy and we're going this way. Now, where, how do you, you know, you can be the, the wheels on the vehicle. I do agree to an extent. I was, what, what show have we been watching the other day? Oh, that's right. For All Mankind on on uh, Apple TV, which is fabulous. And there's like this character who's sort of like an Elon Musk style character and they're all racing to Mars and he's really cool and NASA are all really old fashioned and slow and the Russian space agency are all really fa- old fashioned and slow. And he, he, he does this point in this, he does this scene where he opens a decision to the floor and he doesn't make the decision himself. He says, what do you think, guys? And he calls a town hall meeting there and then with the individual concern that he's thinking of hiring. And he says, should we hire her? And they all have a big debate and then a vote, sort of because it's cool and Silicon Valley. And you just think, I think that's a really bad way of doing it. Well, there's, there's certain times when that works. The issue is with that is it sets a precedent that every decision will be made that way. And then when it's not, that's also demotivated. Isn't Again, just... this is all things that well, I've, you know, I've learned. I think that's and I find that so point, difficult. Rob. Do you know who does it? Pret. Right. So all staff, are, I think when Pret are hiring, the staff basically make the decision as to whether they want that person to work with them. In their team. Yep. That's, I, but I get it in that environment. I mean, Pret's chaos, isn't it? So like, I get that you would, but are they, are they getting enough applicants to what be able I to do that? What I notice is that the Maybe. staff at Pret turn over slowly. Yeah. 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 The same one in your local Pret all the time. Yeah. 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 So I noticed I went in, you know, it's three years since the pandemic really almost, isn't it? Yeah. I went into Pret the other day and the same guys making coffees and the same girls running the branch. Yeah. I think and they do get like, a lot of autonomy there. They can choose, like they can choose certain people to give free coffee to and things. If, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Which uh, is good if you're on But the- apparently if you get a job there, you go for the day and they all interview you and then they all get together and the manager says, what do you think, guys? Yeah. As a candidate, would you do that for minimum wage? Are they all of a certain age? Pretty young, I guess. Yeah. What do I do? It's a great, it's a great mechanism. But it's funny because even for minimum wage jobs, the demand for candidates is so immense. Yeah. It would be interesting to see. Yeah. But their point is everybody really gets on in this team. And if you're in this team, you're in our gang and it's a real gang and, and and we look out for each other. Yeah. I don't know. So it's interesting when he talks about this. I I don't make decisions for other people. Make that decision yourself. And then he was quiet for what seemed like a long time. And where he starts with this is, the first bit is these one minute goals. So the, the analogy, it's a story, isn't it, of this manager. And I think, Rob, you made a great point, which is he talks about, it's amazing how well it works. I'm still surprised at how little time he needs to spend with me since I've learned how to do my job. And I think you made a great point earlier, Rob, which is, is it really what everybody wants? Does everybody really want a manager that lets them just get on with it? I'm not sure they do. I think some people do. You know, Mike, you deal with plenty of candidates, don't you, where actually you think, where, where often they say to you, I just want to be left alone. Particularly well, soon- Johnny, 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 who wants to be left alone more than anybody you know? You. Yeah, just leave me alone. Yeah. 100%. Literally, Rob, if you left Mike in a nuclear bunker with food, water and... And a phone. Uh, food, water, yeah. phone and a few DVDs of uh, famous jiu-jitsu fights from the ages, Mike would be quite happy. 
No, that's unfair. From a work perspective, <laughs> you would be from a work perspective. Just leave me alone. Yeah, I get that. I'm the opposite of that in a weird way, which is is, is difficult now because I don't have anyone to give me one minute presents and stuff. But I always wanted the kind of feedback loop. But I think it's difficult. I mean, we're saying that. I think when I was saying that not everyone wants to be managed that way, it's difficult to write a book that sells two million copies that applies to niche yeah, circumstances. I mean, but yes, it's, quite right. Quite with, right. With this quite book, right. I think that it's one of those books where you have to, if you blink, you can miss stuff. He said, page 28, our manager works with us to make it clear what our responsibilities are and what we're being held accountable for, which is a very narrow, very throwaway line. But you actually have to read it and think about it. They make it clear what our responsibilities are and what we are being held accountable for. And actually, I think that's a really crux point of the book, isn't it? The second bit's massive. Yeah. That's the, I mean, for me, and again... Which page are you on? 28. 28. Uh, do you know, I, I outlined exactly the same bit. How many times do you, I spoke to a client a few weeks ago who was firing somebody, which is very rare in this market, and I said, why? And he said, he's doing a brilliant job on everything apart from his job. And I said, what do you mean? And he, he said, he's involved with the development team. I'm not taking the piss. He's done a brilliant job with it. That development team have come up with stuff from meetings he's been to with customers where actually he's really helped drive the product forward. He's involved with pre-sales. He's involved with this. But do you know what he isn't, do you know what he isn't doing? I said, what's that? He said, he hasn't closed anything. And he said, everybody loves him. And he said, it's going to be really tough one this for me when I see him off because actually... He's a real team player, but he's accountable for his number. We, I don't want to go too much into it, but we hired a guy not too long ago who did, who was very similar. And you do get this, you get salespeople who come in, the last thing they want to do is sell. <laughs> it's vlog stuff. But it's weird because, and then, and it's, and it's like, oh, but I've been doing it. And you're like, this is really valuable work, but I didn't need a product manager. Or maybe I actually, I've just learned that I did, <laughs> but it's not you. Yeah. Um, and there's still a sales target over there that, that's not been met. And it is difficult that, but that's, Again, one of the th- that's just salespeople obfuscating for the fact they don't want to sell. Yeah, but do you find? I mean, you deal with that's all you deal with. But do you find that that's the majority? I mean, it's quite confident to me if if that's the majority. It's right. minority. I tell, the good, the good, I tell you now, the good ones are lone rangers who say, "What's my job? What's my target? Leave me alone." And when the managers call them, they go, "Why are you calling me? I don't get it." There's a tipping point, isn't there? Where where I think we all wake up and realise, actually, what am I here for? I'm here to make money. Yeah, I'm here to earn my money and it's great and everything that you hold it. And he said, what he said about him was he said, if there's a meeting invite, he'll accept it. Never says no. But actually, you, you know, you read this little line here. Our manager works with us to make it clear what our responsibilities and what we're being held accountable for. I wonder the extent to which the client I was talking to has really made it very clear you're accountable for that. That's it. Only that. You want to go to other stuff? Fine, brilliant. But that's your accountability. It fits into the, I mean, I imagine it fits into the the one minute manager monkey version, I don't know what it's called. But where, you, and, and I've dealt with a thing like this this week where you have people who've got, there might be 10 priorities and, and eight of those might be working more closely to the development team and whatever, the product's not selling because of this. But you know that the focus of four hours of your day needs to be prospecting, two hours demoing or whatever. And then the, the other bits, like if you get to it, yes, try and address the wider company issues. But like you said, if they know what, What's the thing that's at the very top? And focus on that. And if you don't get that done today, keep going tomorrow. And if you, you know, with sales, obviously on, it's ongoing. But and I again, think that's super mani- common. And it's the manager's job to tell that person and, and to coach that person as to how to say no to all those other 
yeah. distractions, isn't it? But um, th- what about this bit about goals? E- each person should have their goals, one on each page, Mike. What do you think to that? I, th- I think, you know, Rob sort of alluded to it a little bit, really, but I'll absolutely get s- stuck onto it. I think what you've got to realise is different people want different things. You're going to get some people who just want to turn up and go home. Yeah. They don't need a goal on the page. What's the point? What's the point of making them do that? They don't want to do that. Do you think it's difficult? Sorry to interrupt, but like with the sales goal, because he talks a little bit about further down the line, or maybe it was on the on the YouTube video that, he, that I watched, but around it's essentially, if somebody doesn't have a goal, it's like pulling a, a blindfold over their eyes when they're doing archery and they'll you know, say hit the target and yeah. they can't see the target. Golf in the dark. Yeah. And, and with a sales goal, I get that. With a retention goal, I get that. With a marketing, you know cost per acquisition. I get all, like you can measure that. With somebody who's coming in and doing the same kind of more attritional work, again, is that a way to motivate them by giving them what they probably think is just fluff for the sake of management speak? Because they don't necessarily have this week, what is your key goal? Well, to answer the support tickets again, like I'm probably going to do that. Do, do you understand what I mean? And and I think that they're the kind of people who are demotivated more when you you kind of try and make it more grandiose than it is. But I think the accountability thing, and it feeds into the goals, is... That's where people, we've done so much work in the last 12 months on that and been like, because we're a small company, you get so much bleed between teams where people are like, oh, I did this this week. And you're like, well, that's really good. But this customer just left and you're an account manager. So, you, you know, <laughs> and, and we've done so much kind of almost putting pillars between and saying, this is what you're accountable for. If this fails, it doesn't matter what you did elsewhere. This that's is what you're accountable your for. Number. And that's really worked for us. Like it's made us way more efficient. But I think, again, going back to the very beginning of the book about modern almost culture people are sometimes scared to say you're here for the out this outcome and to have a straightforward conversation at the beginning do you understand what i mean and set a kind of expectation i I, I think particularly in the modern sales environment i think people are scared to say you've got a number go hit it yeah i think people are terrified of some of the staff well they want hire people that's the problem quite often they're quite happy having somebody sat there doing 30 percent then having to hire somebody to go and do 100 i think that happens a lot i think a lot of companies very weak so all clients who are listening to this, anybody under 100%, fire them and give me a shout. <laughs> yeah, give, give me and Mike a shout and we'll we'll solve your recruitment problems tomorrow. Um, but yeah, I, I think the cl- the point of clarity, and your point is very fair, Rob, you know, it's quite easy to be clear with a salesperson. That's your target. You don't need to go to a marketing meeting. That's your target. Hit your target and we're good. Yeah, our salespeople do go to the marketing meeting, so don't tell them that. But otherwise, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you get Because they don't want to be there anyway. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, the other thing is, I think it can go the other way with goals. I've had people before where they were very goal-orientated and that goal can weigh very heavy to the point where it can create underperformance because it's so important a goal to everybody. Mm. Does this go back to your previous discussions about away from and towards people? That... Uh, yeah, a little bit, but uh, I've got a few uh, examples. One is my a personal example, which is I set some personal goals at the start of the year, one of which was I wanted to get to a specific handicap in golf. Actually, that has become, it has weighed so heavy that it's led to underperformance. Like I'm just not performing because the goal's so lofty. And the one that I always think of as a manager, there's a few examples where I feel I've broken people with goals. And he doesn't talk about that. And Mike, can you remember Chris Scott? Yeah, I can. Yeah, he was a tough guy. You know, he was an ex-army something. Ex-Royal Marine. He'd he'd been shot at. Literally, he'd had bullets whizzing past his ears. He'd seen people get shot. I broke him with a target. With a sales target? Yeah, I broke him with it. He had a sales target of nine job specs a week. 
I think it was the and, application and of the sales target, actually. It was the target. It was made very clear to him. It was quite a highly pressurised environment. And he was a very goal-orientated guy. Yeah. And so between us, he was struggling with it. And between us, we broke him with it. Literally, I broke him. Yeah. And I remember my manager was on holiday and another leader came over to Leeds after he'd resigned and he said, you may as well have tattooed the number nine on that kid's forehead backwards because all he could see was that number nine. And there was nothing else in his world and not hitting it crushed him. And was he getting nowhere near is the, is the point that... No, he was doing an all right-ish job. He was getting six, seven, but because it wasn't nine... Yeah. And I think you can break people with a goal. Yeah. And I think what he doesn't talk about is being very, very careful with the goals, particularly with goal-orientated people. I guess the point of having them contribute pretty heavily to the setting of the goal. I mean, we do that, but obviously then you get an element of people going, oh, well, I'm 50% retention. And you're like, well, obviously that's ridiculous. So, <laughs> and But I think having people feed into it, hopefully, pull because you're always going to, you know, I'm always going to, I'm sure you always, you're always going to go, right, this is probably a stretch, but we'll put it as the goal and then we'll work our way down to where we actually want the goal to be. Yeah. Um, and I think as long as they've had an input... It may and I don't think he's talked much about sub-goals that lead to the goal. Yeah, that's because it's a one-minute management book, not a five-hour yeah. management book. <laughs> okay. but, but again, it's with true, a salesperson, would you expect... Because I think, I know we're focusing on the sales element, but I was going to say with the stretch target like that, that's a bit, that's too high. The reason I asked is if, if it was anywhere near it is because whenever, when I did sales, if you were kind of... You know, if you were halfway through the quarter, but you were thirty percent to your target, you would almost be like, "There's, I can, I'm not going to get them freeze." And then you're like, you're just spinning your wheels because you're not, you know. And then you learn to just to actually, that's the time. Like, you're a, just, fo- like a football team that's got beat and they put the queue in the rack and they end up conceding six goals. Don't yeah, they? and the, and then you know the the goal does seem really far away then because you're not actually doing anything towards it, so you don't even feel like you're making progress yeah. even intangibly. But with the sub steps, like you said, a methodology where you can go right, just keep doing the same things. You know, like Man City playing football, just, just <laughs> exactly the same playing, mechanism. Playing, yeah. And um, I wonder if that's, but like Mike said, that's trying to get away from that kind of big annual appraisal goal setting. Yeah, absolutely. So on the subject of goals, he talks about, plan the goals together, describe them briefly and clearly, have people write out each of their goals with due dates on a single page. I mean, that's a bit old school. I'll tell you interesting, Mike, there's a feature in Asana that we don't use called goals. That's re- I had a look at it, it's really neat. Um, maybe we could do that with our people. Encourage people to take a minute to look at what they're doing and see if their behaviour matches their goals. That's really cool. Ask them to review their goals each day, which takes only a few minutes to do. Yes, it does. If it doesn't, encourage them to rethink what they're doing so they can realise their goals sooner. Good. I guess that's the bit about the sub-steps though, isn't it? Like, yeah. is your behaviour actually... So this is the goal and you're meandering over there. Yeah, you're Come going, back over here. It, like. This is the goal and you're going to a meeting to talk about something completely yeah. different. Is that is that taking you towards we're hitting your goal? No, right. You know what to do. And a, a, a favourite, something I've learned over the years, I would say the most powerful line I've got in that situation is, you're a smart person, you'll work it out. I, I just find that's been probably the best thing I've ever said to anybody. If you're a good, if the, the thing is, if you're autonomous, then you do, it gives you a bit of like, oh yeah, yeah, I am. Yeah, this would be fine. <laughs> you're smart, you'll work it out. As long as you've got, yeah. The, and I've only really acquired that in the last two, three years. I used to be very directive where I'd say, do that, do that, then do that, and then do that, and then do that. But actually spend your whole day thinking what you're doing is managing people, but what you're not doing is actually, you're just dictating the series of steps to everybody. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, well, they're just a vehicle for your ideas then as well. Yeah, and you're like, and it's incredibly well exhausting. Yeah. Incredibly exhausting. Um, and then the next bit is one minute praisings. What do you make of this bit, guys? Like it, like it. I, I, really I, good. I have always tried when somebody does something well, irrespective of how minor it is, to drop them a note and say, "Listen, I thought that was absolutely top draw," and I really think that has, br- you know, there's no cash bonus to it there's nothing other than me saying costs nothing there's nothing other than saying listen that's absolutely top draw that I remember a while ago maybe a year ago something like that we did our quarterly sales meeting and I did this exercise I told you about it Johnny I did this exercise and I took out a positive thing somebody had said in each of their presentations and I wrote it down verbatim a one line and it only took me about 10 minutes and I dropped them all in email saying listen I liked on slide six when you said x I thought that was great nice I mean that it just bred loyalty and what's interesting Johnny you and I were talking about the sort of one percent favoritism I get from the resourcing team I think it's that kind of thing personally I really think that made a big difference I think it's as simple as nice job that's all you have to say I've done that Great, just had a look at it. Nice, nice job, mate. Yeah. I think it's more than that. I think it's more than that. So, personally... Do you think you have to embellish? I, I think you have to be more specific. You know, if I said to my wife, you look nice today, she'd go, oh, thanks, Mike. I think if I said to my wife, uh, I think you look nice today, your shoes really go with your bag, it's an infinitely better response. I mean, definitely I think in that the, context. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's the same with people, so... Yeah. At the minute, I've got what one of the researchers is doing some work. Uh, we're trying to find a CRM salesperson. And what she'd actually done is she took everybody that worked for salesforce.com and she broke them down and, and gave me a uh, like a like a sub-breakdown of them. And one of the things that she'd done is she'd said, this person has been at Salesforce for X amount of time, but they were promoted three months ago, so I'm not going to include them on the list of people to headhunt. And I thought, that's smart. Yeah. I didn't ask her to do that. She did that. So making a reference point, and what I said to her was, the fact that you've pointed that out has saved us both an absolute bucket load of time. Thanks for that. I really appreciate it. That specificity, because it, it did save me time. And then what she's now done is she's taken that into other projects. Now, it's interesting you use the word, I appreciate it. Because I made a note here on page 40 where he says, when he notices you've done something right, he tells you precisely what you did right and how good he feels about it. I've written here, what do the manager's feelings really have to do with the good work? Because I'm not sure about that. I think sometimes I've, I've been guilty over the years of making my feelings about people's work too important. He doesn't cover this in here, and he should. I think you should make criticism non-personal. I think you should make praise personal. That's nice, Pricey. Go Criticism on, Rob, should be non-personal. Praise should be personal. Yeah, that was perfect. That's that's absolutely. It. I think that if you if you that's going to be micro content, isn't it? If you live by the the kind of idea that managers have respect from people under them, if you like, and if and people want the respect of their manager, then saying, "Oh, I feel I feel like that was a really good piece of work. I feel like that's really helped us." There was a there was a guy on another podcast recently, the Diary of a CEO, who was talking about. That's it's popular, that, isn't it? It's reasonably popular, yeah. I don't think it's quite at this level, but it'll, it'll get there. <laughs> but it's um, he was saying that the way that you should discuss anything with with staff is saying, even when they, they make a you know a bit of a, a mess of something, saying, I feel like you just didn't really care about that. And then it, it makes them sort of, there's an emotional reaction from them, which elicits uh, kind of a, yeah. a functional reaction. It's, it's very easy to make it about you. Yeah. 
And uh, over the years, when I've made it about me, that has not been successful. I think, it, like I say, I think if it's praise, it's got to be, it's got to be from the heart. So using mm. my, uh, so basically, I've had an extension done, and now these guys are doing the, um, are doing the patio bit. And to cut a long story short, I said to one of these guys, I "said Listen, I really appreciate what you've done there. That has really helped me out a lot. Do you think there's any chance you wouldn't mind doing that tomorrow?" He did it the next day, even better. And I think you've got because actually, well, people, well, people may may or may not realise it. What most human beings like being told is that they have helped somebody else and made that person feel better. Don't matter how you wrap it up, and that's just anybody. That's a bus driver, somebody in a sandwich shop, or a chief exec. Hundred percent, that's the case. Whereas if you're criticising someone, you're criticising them. Whereas if you criticise their output and their actions, you're not criticising them, you're criticising the outcome and the difference is very subtle. Yes. I think the, 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 the subtlety is people and human beings react well to positive reinforcement and we don't react well to a kicking. Yeah, so don't kick them, kick their work. Yeah. Yeah. And then if the work continues, you can kick them. Absolutely. Um, and I, I think they're very good in this book at making that distinction between praising the person, praising the work, yeah. rather than, well, he's, he says praise the work and he says criticise the work. Don't criticise the person. Yeah. And I, I know in my own career, I've been deeply guilty of criticising people thinking I was managing, but actually all you're doing is kicking the bloody life well, out Well, they're definitely not going to work better after that, are they? But it's, it depends how far well, down the line you create, are as well. And you create fucked up toxic relationships with yeah. them where, where actually the relationship just becomes weird. Yeah. And also they don't respect you. Yeah. But I think that's what, the, one of the things he doesn't capture in this book. And again, where there's one minute X, Y, but is you could, when, when we get onto the one minute redirects, there's only so many of those that you can do about the work before it's about attitude. This is, you know, and then it gets to the point where you're yeah, like, okay, it, it, sorry, it is you. Bye. How many redirects on that subject? How many redirects can you do? I guess. Yeah. We, well, we'll be, if you cover that after a certain number, you just go in a circle, I guess, depending on the direction of the redirection. Well, I think the, the I mean, on praisings, you can never give too many, or can you give too many praisings? I think. Well, his point is that you the, the praisings are largely used at the beginning of either a new starter or a new project or task for anyone to keep create momentum in that yeah place. and to reinforce the good bits then they passively i guess would think oh, i didn't praise for that bit so maybe that's less important but he did praise for this specific thing so i'll keep doing that i think i liked the idea of catch them doing something right because again yeah, with, I, yeah I underlined that I it's very that. good yeah, especially yeah. for new starters again because it, it sets a culture thing because again it and i don't know what what your experience is but in let's use sales again as an example we, we've recently put a, a ton more metrics around everything. Because we used to just measure, like, we close as many deals, great news. But now we measure everything from how many leads we got, what percentage of leads came from this source, that source, all the way through. And I've been very, like, conscious of praising, the, like, this, oh, this, this number looks great this week. This is Because obviously people start to think stuff like that when you can see that. Because he, he's talking about monitoring people really closely. Very easy for people to think, oh, he's monitoring me to, to see something slip or to see if I'm not quite hitting that number or whatever. Whereas I think if you can catch them and go, oh, by the way, that's really good. This is really good. It just encourages kind of adoption and also stops that fear, you know, fear of management or fear of... I think so too. Somebody over your shoulder. And, and I think it, it creates that little bit of momentum, doesn't it? It just gets people rolling, right, I'm doing well, I'm doing well. It gives them an energy. Is there a worry that when you take that away, so to speak, 
that energy goes. That's what I would. No, and I'll tell you why. Because at the moment we we've got this rescue dog called Whisper, right? And Whisper is a Spanish rescue. She shouts a bit, but uh, the ironically named Whisper. But Whisper is a yampy little rescue dog and we're nervous about getting off the lead. So I'm whistle training Whisper at the moment. Okay. So we go out and I say, off the lead, let you go. And I let her get to a certain point that I blow the whistle. She comes back, I give her a treat. And then we do it again and we do it again and we do it again. So I'm training her that the whistle equals treat, whistle equals treat, whistle equals treat. So if she hears the whistle... I can get her to come back when she's miles away because she's a bit dizzy and all she wants to do is run after birds. And actually, we're getting to a point now where I don't have to give her a treat every time I blow the whistle. Actually, if I blow the whistle and she comes up, she just comes running up with a big smile on her face. Yeah, yeah. brilliant. The whistle. Because she just associates the whistle with... Yeah, just conditioned. Yeah, so I think in terms of praising... I don't think you have to praise people all the time. I think you just have to train them that good equals praise mm. and that there's probably praise coming. I think if you praise absolutely every single positive thing, surely at some point that comes over as sycophantic and artificial. One of the things that it gets to is the self-praising. So I think that you're completely right. People get to a point where they go, they do the job and then they kind of praise themselves and that becomes yes. an internal loop of kind of positive reinforcement. For them to be able to tell themselves, I know I'm doing a good job. Yeah. Which is even, and what he's saying is that's a better management because you've delegated then. Yeah. And they're they're off and running, sat in their home office and they're, you don't need to be on the phone with them all the I, time. I do, I do wonder what this guy does after his, if he's not got any new starters for a minute, because he seems to be kind of like, I'll put <laughs> well, the wheels on and push you and then I'm like. <laughs> well, this this book makes out that basically stares out of his office window yeah. all day. I don't know his employer is, but I don't think they need him. So what about redirects then, guys? We're on page 56 is the summary of it. His, his point is, which I think is great, is confirm the facts first and review the mistake together. I think very often, you know, if somebody's not producing the results you want, we make a lot of assumptions very quickly. You know, we get it a lot, Johnny, with our researchers where actually they go a little bit off-tangent. Yes. And actually it's because the off-tangentness, whatever that is, whatever that uh, adjective is, was caught early enough, I think. And, and, and his concept of it, I think, is excellent. Yeah, I think the confirming the facts is massive because I, I mean I'm definitely guilty of this. When you go in and you start saying you, you just blurb for five minutes about something that's not been good enough, saying do you do you feel like this happened? Do you think is my account of what you know? So they can go yeah, fair enough, I did fall short or I did yeah, I did speak to that colleague and that well whatever it might be, and then you can kind of be like okay, so what should we do? And then it, again, it feels more. I think sometimes that is difficult because again, you don't get you get some people who just sit and I think most people you know, know when they've dropped the ball. Like yeah. But they don't necessarily want somebody directing And, and actually, if you say to them, if you, if you say to them, so what's gone on here? Right. What do we reckon? Great. How desirable is that as an outcome? Not really. Aha. Uh -huh. Because? Yeah. I, I think often you don't have to tell people. You can just ask people because, well, because that does that. What are the implications of that? You know, that's basic salesmanship, isn't it? What are the implications of that? What it's that? really interesting that you said that because when I was reading this, I was thinking... The whole point that he's making is essentially as a manager, you maybe ask a question or dangle a leaf and then it, it just is like a, I mean, it's how to win friends and influence people essentially, yeah. but but links so heavily into sales. Uh, I, just I, shut he, up for a minute and let yeah. somebody he, tell you. He says, he tells them how he feels about the mistake and its possible impact on our results. Uh, surely, wouldn't it be better to say, okay, what do you think to that? Well, it's a bit of a cock up. Right. Okay. What do you think the impact of that is on our results? Yeah. That. Okay, and what's the impact of that? Right, okay, so what are we going to do? 
Yeah. I don't think, as I get older, I think you don't need to really, I'm learning I need to give people a lot less grief than I ever thought. Most people know if they've dropped the ball and most people know if they're falling short. I think the key thing there as well is if you're letting them explain it, even if you said, what 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 does that have, what effect does that have on our results? And they kind of like, well, I don't really know. And you tell them, then the next time that's in their mind and they know that you know. So yeah. you don't have to say, this has done this and have a, I, think, I don't think you can manage people like that anyway. I think you'd, no. especially not now, you'd, you'd struggle, but I, I think would there's you nothing want wrong to? with a good old fashioned shit sandwich. Yeah. I think that he kind of, he sort of does that in the one minute redirects. He says the first minute, I think he says that the first half yeah. of the minute is like, and the second half That's of the minute kind of is, what it is isn't it? so it's, it's, it's a kind of shit toast. With, <laughs> like but, a bruschetta. Yeah, exactly. That's much better. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But it, 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 it kind of is that, isn't it? You give them something positive, tell them what's going on. But again, express how you feel about the mistake and its impact on results. As Miley Cyrus once said, nobody's perfect. Everybody makes mistakes, don't they? Apart from you, Pricey. Uh, I, I think I made one in... Back in the late 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 2008, I think. Something like that. Yeah. Um, but it is really good. And, it, and then he goes into the explanation of why it works, which is really cool. I like that. because, And I bet you've liked this, Mike. 58 pages... He's told you what to do. There you uh, go. That's the, that's the reason, actually. The book only got an eight because there's not enough directional stuff. I thought this on. I put this as a as a post on LinkedIn. Actually, the, on page sixty one, the best minute I spend is the one I invest in people. It's ironic that most companies spend so much of their money on people's salaries and yet spend only a small fraction of their budget to develop people. And I got two thoughts on this. One is right. Two, a lot of it is about investing money yourself. On yourself. So here's the thing, Rob, right? Let's say I worked for you. Let's say I worked for you and you're going to fire me because I haven't sold anything, which wouldn't be. Yeah, it's completely made up this, obviously. <laughs> um, and you said to me, listen, Mike, why have you failed? And I went, well, because you haven't given me any sales training, Rob. Yeah. If I was you, I'd sit there and think, well, uh, at what point did you ask me for sales training? And at what point did you think, I'm going to miss my target, I better invest in some sales training? Yeah, I think that depends on the level, obviously, but I think... No, I, I think level. you're wrong. I don't think it does depend on the level at all. I think so it depends you, on the personal motivation. Yeah. I mean, where because you've, you've talked about this before when you, you have kind of high earners who come in and say, well, I want I want training, sales, whatever it might be. And you've kind of made the point of, well, you're on 100k basic. Oh, yeah, please, please crack on. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, I, I it's the, the, the thing that I got from it, the investing, I was looking for this a minute ago and we're talking about the one minute praisings, but it's in a different area, obviously, is... When you were saying that the kind of the throwaway, not throwaway, but really quick, brief praising that you give to someone that makes them feel 10 feet tall, that's also investment because I think it's too easy to get caught up in yes, just quite. the process or the transactional element or measuring numbers, whatever it might be. If you could, you know, if you manage 10 people and every week you give one, every one of those 10 people, it'll take you 10 minutes to this book. That little investment of your time that costs nothing is intangible, but you would assume that that investment is maybe more valuable than training, especially with salespeople who just want to be told you're brilliant. Like, you know. The other thing that I'm going to say about this is that I've got these guys, right, that, that have built my extension and doing my back garden. And uh, the builders, they have to buy their own tools. Do they, they buy their, yep. They use their own tools. They buy their own tools. I didn't tools. know that. Yeah. They buy their own tools. Now, actually, if you're a salesperson, your tools are, you know, your skill set so we talk about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. That's a tool. Oh, I've got it. We'll buy it. Would you say that to someone? I don't get enough sales training. Yeah. 
Yeah. The set about sales nav. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Save a bit of money there. Yeah, I think that even down to automate, I mean, we, much like I think you guys have talked about, we've built out our suite of, you know, CRM and marketing automation to a point of, you know, it works and it's got a mechanism now, but we didn't have before. And I think that, you know, I would, I'd get MailChimp and you might have my own subscription and get my list in there and kind of do my own thing when I was doing the sales element and kind of be your, your own little entrepreneur claim, within your own. You'd make a claim back. You'd say, uh, you owe me a hundred quids worth of expenses this month and you'd, they'd probably pay it. Well, yeah, but as, you can also prove an ROI and then say the business should be, I mean, that's what I yeah. ultimately with HubSpot is like, we, we should use this across the business because this is what it gets one person. And I think that it's difficult, isn't it? But I, I don't know if you have candidates who actually do that kind of thing. And I think some do. I spoke to, I literally interviewed a lad yesterday afternoon who'd spent yeah. 15,000 pounds of his own money last year on sales training, 28 years old. Yeah. But it's not the training that he's bought that will make him go far. It's the motivation of doing yeah. it. He's yeah. like, it's I the, am going to do it. And he said, I've no interest whatsoever at any point in being a sales leader. All I want is to earn loads of money being a salesman and yeah. I want to be brilliant at it. Yeah. And, and I guess, no, he will go far. Yeah. He'll do well. Like you said, I think just the click to go, I'm going to invest in that myself, yeah. rather than having the kind of mercenary attitude, just that kind of motivation to push yourself forward. Yeah, absolutely. The most and, important, uh, absolutely. whether you're into the training or not. And it's funny, Mike, because I wrote here, let's talk about investing in people. And I do think, like you say, there's tangible and intangible investments. And I also think a lot of training doesn't work. You know, a lot of the books we've covered have been written by sales trainers. On that point, though, if, if your guy that spent, However long he spent. His will work because he's invested his own money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas if you force it upon somebody, it won't work, will it? I I was going to, I worked for BT for the first part of my career. They put me through a graduate traineeship and stuff. It was I brilliant. Bet that was brilliant training. Brilliant. Well, I worked in, I don't know, eight different, essentially eight different businesses over eight years because it's so, so big. But the thing is, in that business, everyone gets, and, and the same in the public sector from people I know, a lot of formal training doesn't motivate them one bit. They feel like they're sat on a, on a course going, oh God, do, I, do I need to be Exactly, here? yeah. Because they're not the kind of people who are thinking, right, uh, and we have, you know, we have like, uh, one of our product owners came to me and said, I really want to do like certified metrics training. Brilliant that you even think of that, that as a that's thing. A, that you want to go for it. You. But yeah. you're not going to give it to somebody who's just sat, if they see it as a bit of a, a detraction, then, yeah. Oh, it's, it's stopping me doing maybe, my job. Maybe you're not the right person. Oh, yeah. God, I've got to go away to Milton Keynes for three days on this yeah. course. Yeah, well, the, that's oh, it. The, I've, that's the I've got to, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, well, maybe you could use those do skills you, have to... Have you got to or do you get to? Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. On 68, he talks about, everyone is a potential winner. Some people are disguised as losers. Don't let their appearances fool you. Love that. I put great page. Great page. First, you can hire winners. They are hard to find and they cost money. Or second, if you can't find a winner, you can hire someone with the potential to be a winner. Then you systematically help that person become a winner. Now, I, I'm not 100% in agreement with that because my view is, isn't it not easy to create winning job functions than it is winning people? Yeah, I mean, I get your point. You know, we talk about the employment trap a lot. I also get his point, though. You know, I think we're in this market at the minute where, you know, uh, a lot of the companies are just paying more to hire. They should pay more money. <laughs> they should pay more. Whereas yeah. actually what they should do is look at the skills necessary to do the job and hire somebody who doesn't, you know, who might not necessarily fit that on paper, but has got the skills to do the job, a.k.a. they might not be an off, you know, an on-paper winner. I think he's absolutely spot on, this guy, about that. 100% spot on. What do you define as the employment trap that you just referred to? So you've got some companies who put all of the, all the job 
all the skill to do the job in the sales job itself. Right. Whereas you've got other companies, and one of them is a CRM company that advertise loads on LinkedIn. And what they've created is a silo of different parts of the job. Brilliant marketing, brilliant product. Right. So that they can hire or they're less reliant on the quality of the individual and therefore they're not in an employment. May I embellish a little bit on that, Mike? I think what we mean by the employment trap is creating an environment where talent becomes so important. And what we find is that the companies that seem to be scaling really, really well and with ease, they create functions rather than hiring talent. Yeah. So they create a job role that is replicable, definable, documentable, where they can say, listen, yes, you've got to be a pretty smart person to even do that yeah. documented process. Come on, smart people. But actually, if you go, hey, whatever. Whereas actually the employment trap is that guy over there is hyper. It's this word talent. The moment you talk about we need talented people, I think you're in an employment trap. Mm. I need people who are really talented. Well, you've got problems then. Yeah, I appreciate what you mean. So you build out the framework of the function so you can put somebody in and go, well, these are the key things. These are the tools you've got. This is a well-defined process that you follow. Yeah. And then you've got a much bigger sea of people that you could pull from. Correct. Whereas I think sometimes companies get stuck in this talent trap where they end up with two, three, four people yeah. who actually who end up being in control of the company because they're so talented and they're so good and what they know is so deeply embedded in their minds that actually, if they left, it would be catastrophic. I would say when I first took over our business, one of the people that was formerly a colleague who was in it, who was very much in that mold, pivotal, if you like, yeah. and left shortly after I took over. It'll have just felt like a crushing well, blow. It w but it was interesting because of wanting a fresh start as well. It was one of those things that pulled all of the curtains back. It was like, right, this one person had built this empire and brilliant person, by the way, over all these areas. And you're like, this is underneath, this is elements of this are in disarray. <laughs> but it was a brilliant thing then because you were like, we've been able to say, right, okay, so what we actually need is a product owner here and a, you know, a, automation testing team here and and really pull out, right, this person covered up all this stuff and was probably doing all of it suboptimally, really, because they're doing too much stuff, um, but had a bank of knowledge and up here. And they become this linchpin yeah. person in the business. And it created challenges, but it also created, you would never, it's completely unsustainable as well, if you yeah. want to scale. It, it, there's no, no scale can come from it. No. And actually, so the, I think we're in a different era now where fast scaling is so important that that whole concept of what he talks about with talented people, I think, is is very different now. Fair enough. Like that page. Very good, though. Very good. Good book. What's the next bit? Why one minute praisings work? Yeah, I didn't really underline much in that. I thought it was pretty boring, to be honest. There was a piece that I saw that he was on one of his uh, chats on on YouTube that he embellished on the bit that says, he's talking about giving teaching children to speak. He says, the same thing goes for teaching a child to speak. Suppose you wanted a child to say, give me a glass of water, please. If you wait until the child said the whole sentence before you give her any water, the child would die of thirst. And I, I have, I've alluded to Johnny before the podcast. I have a galleon of young children <laughs> in my house and uh, they're all, you know, and, and we're going through that with various of them at different paces. And it's completely correct. Like if you, cause you get frustrated with them sometimes, the minute you lose your temper, like I can't tell what you're saying. They don't say anything. No. Um, and I think that's that's true. And I think that 
I think that's what he was saying about it's really important with new starters. Like we just got a new finance manager actually, and we did the month first month end with the new finance manager. We've had the same finance manager before that for ten years. Very set process. And I was praising like finding little bits that were I knew they were trickier bits, but in two months they won't be. And just sort of praising those little bits that that kind of got us to to the end, even if it was imperfect in areas. Because you know that that behaviour is then going to be like, right, okay, I'm on the right path at least. Yeah, because that person's nervous. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, especially in that role. The predecessor's been there 10 years. Yeah. Everybody knows where everything is. What do you do? Do you come in and change stuff and try and improve it? Yep. When everybody's sat there going, no, it's not how we've always done it. Or, yeah. or do you just pick up, you know, that's a, it's a tough role to walk into that, isn't it? Some, where somebody else has been there 10 years. It is. And, we, you know, we, ultimately we are asking for... Whenever anyone new comes in like that, you want a bit more, bit more automation, bit more progress, bit more You've efficiency. You've got to make them feel good about what they're trying to do. It's quite good actually. Rip it up a bit in that scenario, especially when you've got that kind of, you can you can praise the things that you can see are going to turn the wheels that way as well. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So rather than just like, yep, yeah, that's it. That's what we used to do. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, no, that's good. We're on the right path. You can sort of steer away from the things that you think maybe the more inefficient things and the less, even though they got us there and steer kind of, oh, you did that. Yeah, that's really good. You know, which is working and, and does, but. Well, you always want better than that which you had, don't you? Irrespective of, of how much you, you liked your previous finance manager, you're always going to try and have better than they were previously, just because that's human nature, isn't it? You're getting a new person in. I've got this brief at the minute, uh, which is a sales leadership role. It's paying 140 base, which obviously, you know, a bucket load of money. Uh, and the guy that was doing it was a nice fellow, the guy, the recruiting manager. And I said to him, I said, you know, you've got this person leaving who's been there a long time. What did they do right and what did they do wrong? Now, actually, if he can fix the bits that they did wrong and make them a little bit better, he's got a better hire. Yeah, I think that that's a massive advantage there when you come in. Because I was going to say, you've got to try and separate as well people from process. Like the previous person could be fantastic, but it is a great opportunity to go, right, can you do all these things that they did right? Brilliant. But these are the five things that if you could do that, we're going to elevate. I agree with you completely, Rob. What's interesting on page 84, he's got these little, you know, one sort of one, two liners throughout the book. He says, we are not just our behaviour, we are the person managing our behaviour. Yeah. And I think that's about separating people and process. And that's really, really important when you're managing. You know, we've touched on it quite a lot, really. But are you managing the outcomes or are you managing the people? And you've, you know, you've got to manage one or the other of those things and not confuse the two. I agree. And I, I think when he talks about these one-minute redirects and the theory behind it, and he talks about many managers gunny suck their feedback, that is they store up observations of poor behaviour until frustration builds. I think a lot of managers, I mean, I've got a, a very good example of somebody I know who got seen out of a job, a fella recently, where I remember he rang me not long after the, his new boss arrived and he said, it's not going to work, This me and this guy aren't going to work, I don't like him. And I, it, it's very clear there's been no air clearing of any sort. Neither him nor the manager have actually said, right, how me and you going to work together here? All that's happened is he's woken up one morning. He was he was doing a lot of business. He was selling. He said, oh, well, I'll deal with the guy. He's a bit of a dick, but I'm making money. So I'll just put up with him for now. And if he leaves me alone, I'll be fine. And actually the guy had the knives out for him and saw him off at the first possible opportunity. Yeah. There was no praising what we're calling it, redirect. The redirect was, I'm going to redirect you out of the door. Out of the door and onto the street with your box full of stuff. Yeah. And 
I think a lot of people don't do redirects. I think a lot of people just sit there and think, oh, he's no good. Oh. I had a client on the phone Tuesday where he's hired a guy recently and he was ringing me for advice as to how easily will I be able to replace him. And I thought, I wonder how clear you've been with him, because we were reading this book, obviously. Yeah. I wonder how clear you've been with him that his current behaviours aren't what you were hoping. Yeah. But I think that comes back all the way to the beginning when we talked about setting accountability. Yeah. The fear of sitting down with somebody, and again, separate, sometimes, and sometimes it's really not possible, but separate the behaviour from the person. Yeah. And be really clear and say, this is, the, I, I think that we need to look at this. And it's as simple as this week, and I'm not, <laughs> I would have done this before the book, hopefully, but you set the kind of goal for that week, so to speak, which actually is now improvement and performance improvement. And it doesn't have to be super formal, but you come back the next week and go, right, what have we done towards that? Where, yeah. where are you? Right, okay, that's really not good enough. And 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 get to a point where they're really clear and they can either then make a decision like, yeah, maybe this just isn't right for me. Maybe I, I think can't do it. It does happen so often when people are blindsided. And again, I've seen it, so it's obviously been in businesses that I've been a part of, so I'm partially to blame. But you see it where people are kind of, the end conversation has skipped 20 chapters that could have sat in between. Yeah. And he talks about that. Don't kind of save up all of the criticisms for one, one-to-one one, and then expect them in a week to have improved on it because they're going to be massively demotivated after that conversation that anyway. meeting of, yeah. you've done that and you've done that yeah. and you've done that and you've done that. You, that's how you break people, isn't it? And how do you then... So this this is a metric issue. This is a, an attitude issue. This is, How do they know for the next week what to actually address? Because you can't address that in a week because no. you've, you've now got an either a toxic person, a massively underperforming person, and now you've got a very scared person and i think that a lot of people don't do it though a lot of people would rather pay a recruitment fee and hire someone yeah. than actually sit a colleague down and say okay you're accountable for that it's not going in the right direction yeah these are the facts that's what you were meant to have got done by the end of last week it wasn't that was what you meant to have done by the end of the week before it wasn't what we're going to do about it mm. do you think that, that is fear of sitting yeah, opposite another it, human and being like... I think like... it's fear for two things. I think some people are feared of the general confrontation of that. And I think some people are, are scared that, as Mike said earlier in the conversation, it's easy to have a guy who's 30% to number than it is to go back out to market right now. Yeah. And find someone. So I think that what we've got is a job market that's so skewed currently that it's made management and leadership very difficult. I think leading sales teams at the moment isn't easy. Yeah. It's easy if your business is making money, but if you're in a me too environment, maybe markets a bit tough, I would imagine whew, it's hard leading people at the moment because the, the mobility of labour is so great that even if you did a nice redirect, I think people go, oh, all right, he's not happy with me. I'll just go and get another job. Yeah. Do you think it's still that level, do you think? I mean, not yeah. do you think, do you Market's know? It's still that bonkers. Yeah. And then my favourite bit of the book at the end, guys, I love the diagram on page 91. They've actually saved some the whole book up in a pa well, in I was, page diagram process. I was going to say, from listening to, from you speaking before about Michael, like in manuals, when I saw that, I thought, I assume we're just going to discuss page 91. And it's going to be, <laughs> because it's literally the full thing. And what I like about it, the one thing that I was thinking with the one minute goals in the whole book is that's great, but what about the people who go, nah. But it gives you a nice little, if this happens, you yeah, win, do really this. Good. Otherwise lose and it's a loop. Really good. I, I've enjoyed that. So, summary, guys. Marks out of 10 for the new one-minute manager. All 90-something pages of it. 
Well, I've already given you mine. Mine's an eight. Oh, it was at um, the beginning, well, yeah. What, Generous. Yeah, what, what it could have done with for me was just a little bit more of a manual. But I've say what I did like about it is, well, well, something that I personally hate, and Johnny will know this, it's just this whole meeting culture. God, it just everything just takes ages. Can't we just get to the point? Which the book gets the point. You know, I now, I now a lot of the clients know me pretty well. I have like a 10-minute meeting with my clients now. What's the point? They don't care how I am. I don't care how they are. We just want to get an outcome. You're smiling, Rob. It's that simple, though, isn't it? That's life. Yes. Yeah. That would be a really good point is, do you really need an hour for a meeting? Yeah. I, I, so it's succinct, it's straight to the point. Yeah, I mean, it's good. <laughs> you know, you, you sort of pick it up and go, oh, well, it's not uh, five million pages long and there's not 30 pages of book references. Well, I never read them anyway because they're garbage and he's told me what I want to know. So, Ken... He gets a big thumbs up from me. Hey, let's get it right, Price. He sold 15 million copies in 40 languages. Oh, I said 2 million. I've really undersold him there. 15 million Fair copies. Play. You know, that's he's probably a wealthy man. He's not showing off how many other books he's read, referencing people, so he cannot mention them. He's just written a book that you can read and follow. What, like Anthony Anarino? Well, like all of them. Some <laughs> of the books we read, like the appendices of book references. One of the books that we read recently, I can't believe it was, there was 30 pages which referenced other books. What that's saying is, check me out, I've read all these books. Well, I guess that's also why you got bored of reading sales books because they're all then just referencing each other. Anyway, that's what I think. What do you think, Rob? Um, I would say a seven. because Seven or eight. I think it's it was good. I like the fact you can pick it up and literally the week after I used some of this stuff because yeah. I read it a week and a half ago, whatever. The little, you know, making things a bit briefer. The one thing that I would say that I wrote on the first page, maybe after I'd read a few, was the the narrative, the way it's written of this guy going into an office. I was just like, do we need to do this? A bit cheesy. A cheesy, pointless, waffly. Yeah. And for a book that's still on 90 pages, I thought probably could have been 30, but that would have... But I liked it. I guess it's a vehicle for getting the message across, isn't it? And making it yes. more relatable. But, but yeah. maybe it wasn't... You can tell he's not a, a fiction writer. <laughs> from the Absolutely. Work. Well, he's put the dog pill in a block of cheese, hasn't he? Is what he's done. Yeah. Because no dogs want to swallow the dog pill. Yeah, it's just mild cheddar, that's the yeah, issue. Absolutely. But, yeah, absolutely. So um, for me, it's a seven. I'm with Rob on it. I'll tell you what, it's the first book we've read in a while where I've got concrete, usable takeaways that's made me think about my management style it's made me think a little bit more about, you know, Alex is stood here. It's made me think a little bit more about, does Alex have really clear goals? Does he really precisely know that those are your clear goals? Has Charlotte got really clear goals? Are they clear enough? And it's made me think about that, about having clear goal one page, that clear goal one page. And then it's made me think a little bit more about praisings, redirects. I'll use that stuff. So for me, seven, maybe even I might push it to seven and a half. Yeah. The thing, just very quickly at the end, the thing that I like is it is usable, but it's not a change of my, you don't have to change your entire framework approach. No. Or it, people are not going to go, you've changed. It's it's just like yeah. nice uh, subtle little things. You're not going to change your entire game, are you? No, you can just it's drop it It's a gentle in. addition to your game. Which I like. Yeah. Which uh, a lot of the, a lot of the books we read are like open heart surgery, aren't they? Yeah. And you're thinking, well, can I really do that? Which is great. Right. Well, I think that's been a really good show. Rob, thank you so much no worries, for coming on. What a brilliant guest, Pricey. Yeah, my favourite one this week. Very good. <laughs> yeah. I knew that I'd been enthusiastic reaction. <laughs> yeah. Right. Thank you very much, listeners. We'll see you next week for another book and another episode of Inwood Book Club. Goodbye. <laughs>